0: Welcome to A People's History of the Internet, a mini-series from Vague Booking. I'm your co-host, Carter Moon.
1: And I'm your co-host, Jacob Anderson.
0: This week, we are talking to Mitchell Zimmel and Derek Murphy of the documentary series Preserving Worlds. Jacob, can you explain why we're talking to Preserving Worlds this week?
1: Well, we're talking to them because their documentary just also happened ahead at the perfect time when we were working on our series. But more importantly, I think it's an important documentary to look at that examines Archive digital worlds, as in mostly realms that either aren't supported by the company behind them all that much anymore, or exist in like a state of emulation. It isn't exactly like it used to be, but it's kept alive
0: by people. Yeah, the, the series is really remarkable for just demonstrating how much people naturally want to exist in community and how well the internet, especially when you remove a profit motive can allow people to uh, share space uh, digitally and create friendships and bonds that they wouldn't be able to make otherwise. Uh, It's a really, really touching series um, and it was a blast to talk to them. All right, and today we are joined by Derek Murphy and Mitchell Zimmel the creators of the short form documentary series, Preserving Worlds, which examines video game worlds abandoned by their creators and left to the communities that continue to sustain them. Thank you so much for being here,
2: guys. Sure, okay. thanks for having us on. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, thank you. And to start, can you explain to our listeners what your project Preserving Worlds entails and the type of work you went through to present
2: it? Yeah, definitely. So uh, first, I guess, uh, let me give a little introduction to myself. I'm Derek Murphy, I'm the writer and director. And um, Mitchell, do you want to introduce yourself?
3: Yeah, I'm Mitchell. I did the other stuff. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it was the two of
2: us. Yeah. So, um, how did the series get started? Was that a question? Yeah. 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 So, um, let's see. Uh, preserving Worlds is a documentary series. It's on the worker-owned streaming platform, Means TV. And it's all about um, preserving the uh kind of experiential side of playing uh various old online games so every episode focuses on a different uh game or social world uh zzt world's chat second life doom uh habitat now known as neo habitat etc uh missed online so uh basically every episode is like a 30 to 45 minute long interview with a person who is deeply involved in the community uh, of that game or virtual world. And we talked with them to find out like their perspective on it, what it means to them, what it was like to play the game back in the day and what it's like today. And these are all games that are very old. Um, In many cases, these are games that are uh, barely hanging on. And usually the ones we profiled hanging on thanks to the efforts of the players rather than the original developers. Some of the games we looked at, particularly uh, Neo Habitat hadn't existed uh, since around 1988 until uh, about a year ago when that one got revived by a museum, so that was pretty cool. But yeah, that's essentially what the series is. Uh, And Mitchell, do you wanna talk about the uh, type of work we went through to present it? Yeah,
3: sure, the presentation side. Um, Well, like Derek was saying, uh, each episode kind of hangs around uh, an interview that we had with a prominent member of the community, uh, generally somebody who was directly involved in either sustaining the game environment itself or in documenting its existence and kind of creating a record for people to be able to go back to and revisit uh, in the future. in addition to the interview, we also tried to get footage of um, just all of the different spaces and, I guess you could say, places <laughs> within the game <laughs> environment. A lot of these games, uh, for the most part, have a lot of user-generated content. So, in addition to what came, uh, you know, prepackaged with the software, um, you know, there's a lot of custom levels, custom environments, and spaces. And we tried to give kind of a quick tour, uh, kind of uh, highlight a few different interesting places that we found in our uh, visits, in our explorations, and uh, try to give people just a rough sense of like, here's all the things that you could find potentially inside of uh, this game or, or such.
2: Yeah, there's a sort of travelogue element to it in that regard.
3: Right.
0: It does sometimes feel like uh, Parts Unknown with Anthony Bourdain, but like inside of video <laughs> game.
2: <laughs> yeah, I was uh, really uh, wanting to do something like uh, Chris Marker, the classic leftist uh, French documentary filmmaker. Mm. He used to do travelogue films going to various countries. And um, he even started out as a travel writer, but mm. he did a lot of great documentaries where he uh, goes to different locations and has this very like essay film subjective uh, intellectual like uh, – thing where he just talks about his experience going there and Mm. so uh you know that's a lot of fun to include that element in a in a documentary that like here's a place that you could go you know absolutely absolutely uh can you guys explain your backgrounds before you made preserving worlds sure so <clears throat> I'm a uh, librarian. I've had archivist roles in the past, uh, so I've got a bit of experience with like preservation, a little bit of software preservation experience. Uh, not, I'm I'm no like software engineer or anything though, but um, so there's that. That's one side of it, and I've also been doing like hobbyist filmmaking stuff for quite a while, um, including work with Mitchell. Uh, we made a feature film called Sarasota Half in Dream that is also on means TV about our hometown of Sarasota, Florida, which is both where we met and uh, yeah, it's both of our hometowns. It is a bizarre place, uh, which is what that, that documentary has that travelogue element as well.
3: I was about to say, speaking of the travelogue element, and it's also funny thinking about uh, Sarasota Half and Dream, not only it's where Derek and I started making films together after being sort of acquaintances uh, and playing board games together, that sort of thing. But it's also kind of the initial seed where Preserving Worlds started uh, because in our, our, I guess, travelogue of our hometown in Florida, uh, at some point we were going to include that, um, I I guess a different edited version of the pilot episode for Preserving Worlds on Worlds Chat uh, was also going to kind of feed into the themes of like urban exploration, places that have been abandoned, and sort of repopulated or have been reworked into a new purpose they weren't intended for. Um, And then we realized that it was not a place in Florida, it was a video game. (laughs) (laughs) So we cut it from the film, but uh, held on to it and eventually it became this web series.
0: That's cool. I like when things happen
2: that sort of organically and naturally. Yeah, totally. Mitchell, do you want to talk about your background too?
3: Oh yeah, I forgot. Yeah. Uh, So I'm an animator uh, by trade. I do a lot of freelance animation work. Um, I've done a few personal short films, mostly in college and stuff. Um, And that's, yeah, that's my background.
1: (laughs) That's all. Why do you personally think it's important to digitally archive these digital haunts? Like, what should happen? Should Second Life, like, shut down someday?
2: Yeah, so... I think uh, we've shown in the series that these uh, virtual worlds are extremely important to the people who frequent them in many cases, you know? I mean, these are like homes away from home sometimes. These are, they allow people to connect with each other at a distance in new and interesting ways. Um, You can meet new people and form important relationships, Um, you know, and they can even be useful sometimes for people who may have like... Uh, You know, we heard about a person uh, who uses World's Chat, who has a paralytic spinal cord injury, and it makes it a lot easier for that person to, like, make new friends, you know, Um, and feel like they're getting, like, getting around, you know, and seeing new places. It's, uh, yeah, so they're important in that sense, and I think they're also going to be very uh, significant to, like, the historical record right it's going to be um something that i think researchers in the future are going to be very interested in i mean we're looking at these are like the start of like a kind of new medium right this uh virtual world thing like a way of like embodying yourself in a virtual space and and talking with people at a distance and each of these games represents that concept in its own particular way so that all is very interesting, but these games are also very ephemeral. They're more ephemeral than most video games in the sense that if you take an offline video game like Super Mario Brothers or whatever, you know, you can emulate that game, you can run the software. If the software is perfectly preserved, which is a question in itself, but if it is perfectly preserved, then in 50 years, maybe you can boot it up. You can play it and get roughly a you know pretty similar experience to what it was like to play the game back when it came out. With these online games, even if you preserve the software perfectly, which again is a huge effort in itself, but if you manage to do that, then in 50 years, you're going to be presented with an empty world. If you log into Second Life, there's going to be no one there. And Second Life in particular, you know, I mean, there's not going to be anything there because all the stuff in there is user generated and is probably not going to still be there. Uh, But, you know, even something like... uh, world of warcraft would be a good example right maybe the game is there you can go to all locations you can fight npc monsters or whatever but you can't interact with anyone and that interaction is one of if not the most crucial component of these like virtual worlds that's what they're all about that's why people are there and so if you boot it up and it's empty you're missing that that huge component of it and so what we wanted to do with this series was kind of use uh ethnographic methodology in a way to like profile or document like what it's like to play those games while they're still around and while they're still online and the original some of the original players are still there so I think that in the future people are going to want to know about what it was like to play some of these games. So we wanted to make like an entertaining fun like documentary series, but in terms of like the animating like uh principle of this thing or the educational component of it, that's what we're trying to do is like preserve that experiential side.
0: What are some of the favorite worlds that you guys uh visited for the series?
3: I think I mean it's definitely a, an, an, sorry, <laughs> let me go again. I would say it's definitely an answer that's very personal to me, mm. but just because uh, in our episode on Myst Online on Uru, uh, the uh, guy we interview, Max, uh, was actually my roommate of five years, uh, so I have a very personal spot in my heart for mm. the world that he made, Galame, um, even though it's not one of the most impressive places that we saw in the series. It tells me so much about who, like this friend of mine, was and like what he was like in high school before I knew him. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of, I guess, sentimental value in that personally to me. So that mm. was that was cool to see.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, for me, uh, ZZT was one that I wanted to cover from the jump because. <laughs> it's one that i played uh i played a lot of like uh player created zzt games like hobbyist games back in the day uh in the early to mid 2000s when i was you know in middle school or high school i played some of these games yeah i never made one but i played a lot of them and it was uh,
1: too confusing to figure out how to make one personally
2: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I just never really tried. Um, I was, you know, the kind of kid that was like lurking forums instead of posting on them back at that time, you know. So more of an observer than a participant in that community, but got a lot of uh, value out of playing those games. Like had a ton of fun playing them, had really fond memories. And when I found out that there were like these amazing like hobbyist like uh, efforts to preserve ZZT games and make them available, today in a way that they weren't, you know, for a while, I thought that was really uh, impressive and really inspiring. So I was really excited to talk to Dr. Doss, the uh, person who's running that museum of ZZT website and making them available. So I was very excited about that one. That's great. Yeah.
1: Why do you think that some of these worlds such as Second Life have such a wide and varied user community, but the interface itself is just like so hard to navigate for the average user?
3: I would say one of the things that might draw a person to a game, even if it is hard to access or, you know, difficult to navigate, I think a lot of it is, you know, maybe when the person encounters this game, like in their lifetime, uh, there's a lot of people who start out playing these games as teenagers, as people with a lot of free time, but not necessarily like, a lot of personal income to be able to like you know go out you know into the real world and you know do stuff that costs a lot more money um so you find you know different little pockets like uh you know inside of second life or world of warcraft or um just some sort of online environment and even if it's not the easiest to access uh at that stage in life i mean i from personal experience i would say like you're willing to just like put in the time <laughs> yep. you know you'll figure out how to do this stuff um with the the mist online the uru uh game there's actually a whole like component of the game that you have to complete solo before you can even access um like multiplayer content i guess what um like you you have to kind of unlock different things like there's a piece of equipment you have to get called a key, and before you have that, it's like kind of difficult, if not impossible, to like do a lot of stuff like chatting with people and like adding friends and stuff. Wow, okay um yeah it's but I mean the Mist games are also like that where yeah. there's like a bunch of they're not strange gonna hold your puzzles. Hand. Yeah, yeah. They're <laughs> they're like you figure it out. You know, pull the lever. I'm not gonna tell you what it does. Um <laughs> but you know depending on where you are at your, you know, point in time in life, where you are personally, you you might be willing to put in the time and then get rewarded with this very unique thing that I would say then sticks with you, mm-hmm. you know, going into adulthood. Like once you're kind of in it, um, you kind of hold on to it, whether it's for nostalgic reasons or Um, personal, sentimental, social reasons, other people that you know you only know through this game and I think that's a lot of what keeps people connected to these uh, environments
2: and sometimes the communities draw you in as well, I mean Mm -hmm. we talked with someone uh, who uses Second Life a lot, who was really there, at least was still there because of um, queer trans and furry communities that she was a part of and so you know, Second Life is huge with the furry community. Yes, I do know that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so, um, you know, you kind of, if you're part of that community, I suppose you want to go where the people are and the ability to uh, have your own avatar that you can customize whatever way you like and uh, spend time in what f- approximates a physical location with mm-hmm. other people. Um, that is an intoxicating thing, you know? So I'm sure that draws a lot of people in as well. But I do want to really... Uh, um, emphasize or second what Mitchell is saying that um, all of these games that we covered right now have an extremely low uh, cost to entry. They're yeah. either free or like, you know, you got to buy Doom and Doom 2, but it's like $5, right? I mean, it's yeah. it's either free or extremely cheap at this point to play these, which is uh, something that makes them a lot more accessible. They may be a little clunky to play, but anyone can do it, you know, mm-hmm. if you, uh, like Mitchell said, if you put in the time.
0: Well, and you also don't need, like, necessarily the latest computer. You don't need, like, a, a like mm-hmm. or, or PC gaming rig to be able to play these and things like that.
2: That's a great point. Yeah, all of these I think you could probably play on a 10-year-old computer. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Exactly.
0: Um, do you guys feel like you were able to include all of the digital relics that you were hoping to touch on? Or was there anything that kind of ended up on the cutting room floor that was still interesting to you guys?
2: There were a few that we wanted to cover that um, we actually had picked out guests and kind of had plans. But in some cases, uh, it just didn't fit within our timeline. So Mm -hmm. we were going to do a uh, episode on Active Worlds, which is uh, quite similar to Worlds Chat in some ways. Uh, Some of the same people were involved in creating it. It It's from the same era. But um, we had a really amazing guest uh, for that who was on board. But unfortunately, the California wildfires happened around that time and kind of And our guest, you know, lived in an area that was going through that. So we had to postpone. And by the time we were able to reschedule, it was too late for our production schedule. And uh, we also were going to do uh, Furcadia, which is another old, uh, that's like a 2D kind of top-down view or isometric, I guess, view uh, game from the nineties that we also had a cool guest uh, worked out for, but um, weren't able to schedule it in time. So maybe if we do more of these at some point, maybe we'll uh, look at those. Mm-hmm. Definitely.
3: Yeah, I still want to explore those uh, games personally. Um, I'd also say there are a few games that we also tried to look at, but from a more categorical side of things, just like had a hard time figuring out the logistics for presenting it. Um, the yeah, game I'm thinking of his gemstone. Uh, which is this text-based uh, adventure RPG game, right? A mud, as they say. Yes, sure. And it's super interesting. And the community has a lot of really colorful stories, including some I hear that involve uh, farmer bro, Martin Shkreli. Um <laughs> He used and, to play gemstone religiously okay. back in
2: the day. <laughs> and Sounds he was like... uh, just as annoying then as he is now. Yeah. <laughs> not, not it's surprise. like,
3: you, you got to hear about this. You really want to hear about these stories and things. Um, yeah. But just because we were making a video web series, uh, you know, we experimented with like playing the game and looking at it, but we were having a hard time conceiving of how to represent that in a visually interesting way. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> that's another one that I'd like to... Figure out, but mm. it is a more interesting sort of creative logistical problem. Yeah, um, that you know directed us to looking at different games instead for this thing. Totally.
2: Totally. Yeah, which it's worth saying uh, because I I didn't mention it earlier. For anyone who hasn't seen the series, the whole thing is filmed within the games themselves, so you never actually see any uh, humans uh, shot in person. It's all uh, avatars. The whole thing is done using screen capture, um, but edited as though it, you're, it's like edited like a traditional documentary. But it is all within the games. Yeah,
0: so yeah. So gem.
2: Oh, sorry. So yeah, gemstone does uh, present difficulties being all text. You can't see a three D environment.
0: That is one of my favorite things about the series is that it feels so immersive because you never sort of break out of the world's, you never like cut to like a traditional interview with somebody or something like that. Like it stays so absorbing because you're just always locked in the environments. It's great.
2: Definitely. It also, you know, not going to lie, it helped during the pandemic to be doing yeah. uh, a series that required uh, no in-person filming. <laughs> yeah, no,
0: that's, that's kind of what's so brilliant about it to me is it is like one of the smartest things I've seen of like people making things during COVID of like figuring out a way around the you know social distancing restrictions and everything
2: thank you yeah it certainly helped
3: yeah we we started talking about fleshing it out into a series like december 2019 Mm. um and then yeah things just started falling into place. yeah, yeah <laughs> that that's so great that's so cool way.
0: yeah i you know I'm, I'm a filmmaker myself and like all of my plans for the movies i wanted to do in 2020 just completely got thrown out the window so oh, yeah I'm sort of jealous and also really glad that you guys were able to do this so perfectly Thank
2: you. yeah i had some random other ideas that uh i could have done but uh couldn't do because of the pandemic yeah Yeah, definitely
0: yeah it's it's uh for me it's just been like i'm not gonna ask people to put themselves at risk so we can make a short in a weekend that you know 300 people will see
2: yeah it's not worth it yeah exactly
1: uh why do you think something like zzt continues to have such a loving and varied level creation community
2: hmm well with zzt it's like again like free anyone can use it um it's a bit outdated and uh everything but it's not that hard to learn how to use um it was created in a way to be uh as easy as possible to learn and so that helps uh a lot of people were able to make games with it and so now there's this long legacy of uh great like hobbyist games that have been created with it so there's sort of like an artistic canon or like a a creative tradition of ZZT games at this point. So that inspires a lot of uh, love and uh, connection in a community. So there's a lot of people that were around making stuff that are still around or have returned, uh, especially now that ZZT is sort of having a second wind now, in part thanks to the Museum of ZZT site. So. Uh, there's sort of a culture there, right? There's like in-jokes and everything, so that's yeah. cool. Um, it's the same way with most of the games that we covered. Doom is like really exactly the same way. I mean, Doom yeah. is cheap. Uh, it used to be really hard to make Doom uh, wads or Doom levels, but uh, it's, it's these days, it's, yeah. yeah, yeah. Back in the day when it first started out, all the tools were really tough to use. Oh,
1: you had to have a math degree, basically, in
2: order to do it. Yeah. <laughs> It's true. But you know, then uh, the people with the math degrees ended up designing some much easier to use software to do it. And so these days, it's not so bad. But um, again, yeah, you get these community traditions, you get like a vocabulary or slang that comes up around it. Relationships that last through the years. Yeah.
3: Yeah. It's crazy. I think one thing that really stood out to me when we were profiling ZZT was how much Uh, of that sort of in-joke or, like, in-community sort of culture uh, was prevalent, like, throughout all the ZZT games. Like, the fact that, like, every single ZZT game basically has, like, the exact same sense of humor. (laughs) And they're all, (laughs) like, very self-referential to other ZZT games. Uh Like, they know it's a community of, like, four ZZTers, by ZZTers. Um, You know, they're not trying to, like, broadcast, like, games that are like going to go out on steam or anything it's like just for this community to enjoy and appreciate uh which gives you this really um insular but in a beautiful way like it's like it's this pocket dimension
2: Mm -hmm.
3: um that you can explore and enjoy
2: it really is like that was something that was very fascinating to me about the whole thing and one of the reasons why i wanted to do games like zzt and doom that aren't really like online worlds that you like are in with an avatar and talking to people. They're more like game creation engines at this point. I wanted to do that because it is fascinating to me to think of it as like folk art of like regular people for like no without money and for no money are creating these things, right? There's no profit motive whatsoever. It's really just about like expressing yourself and expressing yourself to a community of like-minded people. And so you really can't think of it as like an artistic Tradition uh, around a game, right? It's like there are genre conventions and medium conventions that have like come up around that community. And like Mitchell's saying, the like humor of ZZT is like part of that. There's like a certain uh, set of expectations or a certain like set of conventions that have come up around it. Mm-hmm. So you you don't normally think about like a single video game can have that kind of canon built around it. It's interesting.
1: I think that the hurdle of of the limited graphics of ZZT would be like a lot for some people, but the fact that the art that the people create with the tool set is just so beautiful and you don't even need to necessarily use your imagination to see what they're going for. I think is part of the appeal.
2: Definitely. And limitations do breed creativity. You know, I mean, when you're stuck using this old, uh, you know, ancient DOS game that has uh, not that many uh, affordances for like you know, you can't make complex graphics or complex music. Like your, your tool set is quite limited mm-hmm. and uh, people trying to make that thing go further than it was meant to can result in some very interesting art.
1: Will you ever cover something involving Megazooks, the like updated graphics clone of ZZT?
2: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's interesting. I don't know that much about that. You know, I've, I've like read up on it a bit, but yeah. I haven't really played it. I mean, it was Alexis Jansen, I think, right? Who created that? that.
1: Seems right, yeah
2: yeah since
1: i've looked at it but yes
2: yeah sort of like i think that thing like sprung out of uh the early zzt community and it was like the reason behind it was to create software similar to zzt but could that could go further and do more things like go beyond the limitations i know the community is a bit smaller quite a bit smaller i think yes yeah than zzt but But you know adventures
1: are much longer has been my experience Mm. like a megazooks adventure will take like four to six hours whereas easy one will take like one to two hours to complete at max
2: interesting yeah it would be interesting to learn more about that yeah i just am not that familiar
0: fair during your research did you uncover a lot of instances of fans keeping a game or a community running way longer than it was intended to
3: i think that was the main experience that we encountered um <laughs> i mean certainly with the games we covered right yeah it's Uh, Largely, users are keeping the games alive. It's not really something that the developers um, really have the time or resources for, um, especially if they're trying to be, like, a company, (laughs) like, producing a profit every year. Um, Yeah, I was watching a really great YouTube video essay, actually, about, um, like, the idea of not-for-profits uh, MMO uh, creation and development, mm-hmm. um, you know, being able to have like socialized uh, fundraising for online worlds and like how that might like change them. And I know I'm getting into the weeds a little bit here, but uh, you know, oh, yeah. the idea of you could eliminate things like loot boxes, um, you could Please. eliminate a lot of predatory practices Please. that yes. online games like need to feed into their system in order to keep players, and also keep players spending money Mm -hmm. on the game. Um, Unfortunately, we live in a world where currently that is the norm, and developers kind of have to move with the money, um, which leaves players who create these sort of foundational connections with other human beings through these games kind of leaves them high and dry. Um, And so, uh, it's really on their shoulders if they want to try and find a way to sustain the game, try and keep it alive. Um, Rarely, if ever, are they going to find much help from the developers. Although I will say, like, Cyan Worlds uh, creators of Myst and Myst Online Mm -hmm. uh, are, I guess, the exception that makes the rule in that they've been really good to their fans. Uh, they've been really good to the community built around Myst and um, have done, uh, have been, I guess, more, one of the more benevolent uh, developers when it comes to these online games and keeping them uh, viable.
2: Mm-hmm. And it's interesting i agree like cyan worlds is sort of like the model of how you would want one of these developers to behave around uh, one of their aging online games but it's interesting they wouldn't even be uh doing what they're doing with uru now if it weren't for the long long and uh, arduous efforts of the players of the game to keep it alive so uh uru Kind of famously had a really rough start um yeah. it kind of <laughs> collapsed extremely quickly and got shut down after not very long um it got like kind of revived half-heartedly a few times but ultimately like did not survive and so the players of it ended up creating these fan servers that kind of kept the game running online for years while there was no official support for the game and uh after enough time passed, Cyan Worlds became aware of like the uh, lengths that the players were going to keep this game alive, and they ended up um, kind of creating a kind of like a, I think like it's not for profit, basically, like not officially, but like they're running an Uru server officially right now that there's no way it's paying for itself. Like I really do not believe that that thing is making any money, but they're running it and accepting donations. Like it doesn't even cost any money to go onto it. They're taking donations on their website to keep it running. So that's very cool of them. I don't think they would be doing that if the players hadn't shown that level of zeal and uh, interest in keeping it going
0: definitely
1: yeah i was i was thinking about this question since we wrote it and the one thing that came to mind for me was like back in the day players used to emulate wow classic which was just like world of warcraft without any of the expansion packs and then as of i think last year blizzard finally was like oh by the way here's wow classic you're gonna love it and it's like no dude people have been emulating that for almost 10 to 15 years now and now (laughs) suddenly you're like how can we make a quick buck off this fan project
3: yeah and it's sad that like that vanilla wow or the wow classic like killed all of those vanilla servers yeah Uh yeah and, Fanon, true. and had been going and we're doing fine and blizzard didn't need to do anything and no. then they they had still came in anyways and just kind of gutted these yeah. attempts i don't know
2: yeah with cyan at the very least you know they haven't like clamp down on any fan servers some of those old uru fan servers are actually still running and in fact we filmed entirely on a fan server called deep island because that had the uh entirety of fan created uh ages or like areas uh ages is like the mist word for like a world <laughs> okay um yeah so we filmed on a fan server just because it was like the most complete archive of user created areas and we were very focused in a large part on user created stuff plus our our guest uh zib uh max uh played on the deep island server in the past so he chose that one so cyan did not clamp down on that that thing is still running that's very cool of them to let that keep going yeah Yeah.
1: and this segues really excellently into our next question actually which is How often do you feel like corporate malfeasance plays into preventing so many of these virtual worlds from realizing their full potential?
2: All the time, all the time, often. (laughs) Yeah, we um, another game we considered doing an episode on, but ended up punting on was uh, City of Heroes, which was yeah an MMO that was. Yeah, I've never played it myself, but I've read about it and seen video of it. It's, like, all about, like, you play as a superhero and you're, you know, doing superhero stuff. Mm-hmm. But um, it uh, shut down several years back. You you could not play City of Heroes anymore. Like, no. there was no way to play it online. And um, some fans did this secret fan server for City of Heroes that they did not tell anyone about. Uh, it was a very tight-knit, small group, and I believe it was invite-only. Like... For- Yeah, it wasn't even publicly known that this thing existed. You had to be like part of the group to even know about it. And uh, at some point, it became public knowledge that it existed, and the uh, developers of City of Heroes clamped down on it and forced them to shut it down. Come on. Yeah, it sucks. No
1: one is getting harmed. Come
2: on. I know, right? So intellectual property laws really do get in the way of uh, players being able to keep these things going after they cease like they cease to generate profit. Oftentimes yeah. they just shut down because there's no money coming into the company. And uh, you know, it's only natural for players to want to keep it going in their own way. And it is like clearly there's like a graceful uh model. There's a solid working model here for players to take a what used to be a for-profit game and run it non-profit by and for the players of it who while they played it, while it was profitable, they they developed this connection to it that really is meaningful to them. It would just make sense and ethically would seem right to allow them to keep the thing going when the developers aren't. But unfortunately, our uh, intellectual property regime is uh, extremely overbearing and uh, prevents that sort of thing from happening. Even when the game wouldn't wouldn't come back, wouldn't be making any money, it's either it can exist by and for the players, or it doesn't exist at all. And unfortunately, um, in our current system, it tends to power sides on it not existing anymore. Yeah, yeah. I would
3: add, as far as corporate foul play goes, it not only goes into the persistence uh, and sort of extension of the lifetime of these games, but also into the design of the games themselves a lot of times, right? Uh, So, you know, talking about loot boxes and all that stuff. Um, Our episode on Second Life is, I think, a really sort of, like, good example of this in Mm -hmm. that uh, the creators of Second Life, Linden Labs, uh, made it so that, yeah, it's free to log in and you can have, like, a default avatar, I guess, um, with, like, a few customization options. But if you want to create a space in the world, if you want to have sort of just any sort of, like... Environment, your own little pad or whatever, um, you have to pay rent on that either to Linded Labs directly or to uh, some like landlord who like grabbed the property when it was cheaper and is now like selling it out uh, in the game. Um, and there's a lot of um, unnecessary steps, it feels like, uh, to like enjoying this space where they've created like a framework that is otherwise like pretty free uh you can do a lot of things in second life you can interact with objects in fun ways you can have props and things and uh, you can like have like custom animations if you want to like ride on like the bouncy horse toy or whatever um and fly around but you know there's this like giant asterisk where you can't even like you know, pay for a lot of land. I don't know if that would be, you know, maybe a fair approach, quote unquote, to pay just like a very small fee to help keep the server running. Um, But the fact that you have to like pay rent continually um, on these spaces, it feels like it's artificially injected into the game solely for the purpose of generating profit or at least generating interest for potential shareholders or investors who see this and you know they get the cartoon dollar signs popping up in their eyes.
2: Right. It's like, yeah, it would be one thing if like you know you paid a monthly fee to play the game or whatever. I mean, that's not ideal, but like it's honest at least. But um, the way that uh, Second Life operates is like, you know, it's so annoying to me because it's a virtual world. Like by default, a virtual world is post scarcity. Like there's no scarcity. It's all bits on a computer. But second life introduced scarcity in order to collect rent on that scarcity in the sense of like you need to pay rent to keep stuff in second life existing like you need to pay rent for these virtual spaces to stay there and if you stop paying the rent they go into your inventory and they're just gone um everything in second life costs money like your avatar costs money like and you pay players pay each other for things like it's not like in World's Chat. If you like find an old avatar someone made in the world of World's Chat, you just click on it, and now you can use that avatar. In Second Life, you you find like a vending machine where you have to like pay like twenty actual real life dollars in order to like get a a hat for your avatar or whatever. And uh, you can you know as a player you can create the hat. Another player player can like pay you for the hat, but then second life uh developers linden labs collect like a certain percentage of that sale it's uh the the way they've incentivized essentially capitalist property relations within a virtual world is like kind of perverse and weird to me
1: (laughs) do we know what the like yearly revenue for linden labs is at this point
2: i couldn't tell you off the top of my head yeah i I don't know if that's public
1: imagine it's like multiple millions given the small user base but
2: Probably not. Yeah. I know that um, our guest on the episode talked about them uh, clearly wanting to become like enterprise software that's like making a huge amount of money from corporations or whatever, but they've never been able to make that happen.
1: Even, Even when colleges are like, oh, join our like oncoming freshman seminar in Second Life, which I've seen happen at least four times
2: yeah yes Uh, linden labs really marketed heavily to uh universities and uh unfortunately even academia is not immune to marketing yeah
0: um why do you think that so many of these older gaming titles like from the dos era especially uh have such an emotional attachment for so many people
3: i mean again i think it goes back to uh a lot of nostalgia for a lot of players like especially with like dos games uh there was, you know, a huge swath of the population for whom, like, that was just like the first available computer game for people. And that was the first experience they had, like, playing a game like this, mm-hmm. right? And, uh, you know, those old shareware CDs. Um, you know, Dr. Doss talks about Hugo's House of Horrors, uh, was like a big one for a lot of yep. people in conjunction with ZZT. Um, and I don't have that same attachment just because I was born a little bit late uh, to enjoy, you know, DOS gaming. Uh, but I think the very first computer game that I had personally was this magic school bus uh, exploring, like, the dinosaur, uh, you know, oh, yeah. Mesozoic era. <laughs> yep,
1: I remember this one.
3: Okay, yeah. On, it was, like, Windows 95 or 98 yeah, or something. Yeah. And yeah, that's like the very first game that I ever had. And it's not amazing. Uh, it was just kind of one of those old point and click things. And I think they had a few little like infographics on different kinds of dinosaurs and stuff. Um, but it holds a very special place in my heart because it was the first. And you know, it opened up this whole new way of, of play, uh, of experiencing things. Um, it was like a revolution in my mind mm-hmm. of <laughs> what the world could be like. I don't know. Uh,
1: yeah. Why do you feel like things like Abandonware have played into like more people discovering DOS games that they might not have otherwise played? Or like there's that big internet archive site that you could go to right now where you can play like 50,000 DOS games.
2: Yeah. The internet archive is great. Um, yeah. They have DOSBox box set up in your browser so you can just click on a game and play it. And uh can be a little buggy just because it's hard mm-hmm. to run something yeah. like that in a browser but uh it's pretty effective and uh it's really like great for accessibility to be able to uh play these old games without needing to like learn how to set up and install DOSbox and configure it because uh, that's uh, that yeah. can be a nightmare.
1: It, it is it was used to be an absolute nightmare. I think it's literally like a one click install at this point.
2: Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah, emulators can be easy or they can be, like, you know, I'm going to spend the next, like, three days trying to get this thing running properly. (laughs) So it's always really nice, I think, when um, an organization like the Internet Archive can make those things as easy as possible for people. Um, You know, people have a lot of nostalgia for stuff that they played when they were younger or, you know. And there's certain uh, different sensibilities of game design from back in the day that... You know, many of those games still hold up today and you can't really stuff's not coming out today that's in any way like that stuff, so mm-hmm. it can be fun to go back and play stuff from that era.
1: I would argue a lot of the apogee platformers of the nineties still hold up pretty well.
2: Yeah, like uh Commander Keen type Commander stuff.
1: Commander Keen, Jill of the Jungle, uh Cosmos Cosmic Adventure. I used to get all the shareware discs in the mail. And then Jazz Jackrabbit. Yes, Jazz Jackrabbit. And then we would play like one episode and then be like, can we crack this and get the other six episodes or find some way to get the other six and then eventually like months later a cracked disc would appear in the mail
2: (laughs) yeah there was a lot of great stuff from that era
1: uh what do you think the factors are in play to determine whether a creation can have a long-lasting shelf life and a long-lasting community
2: um well as we talked about before you know stuff that's free is uh that's really good when it's just completely freely available that makes it easy for anyone to access it and get into it. Um, you know, I think like the developers, like uh, not clamping down is a big one. Um, the game, I think providing a ability and space for players to express themselves is a big thing, um, especially in the domain that we've been looking at with the series, it's like, you know, if there's any way for you to be creative and contribute your own thing, that fosters a much, uh, more like emotional connection and it just allows for a lot more interesting stuff to happen with that game. I mean, you can have like artistic communities emerge around it.
3: I think, yeah, just even if it's not, you know, a a particular like piece of art that you're creating within the game uh, in a very generalized sense, uh, the answer of, or, or the question of what can you do in the game uh, is kind of a good starting point. I'm thinking about like the Smash Brothers community because uh, that's like one of my favorite game franchises, and the fact that uh, you know Super Smash Brothers Brawl mm-hmm. for the Wii uh, had some interest uh, within the community. You know, they had you know some tournaments and things like that, uh, but it largely went away after the sequel came out for like uh, 3DS and Wii U. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, even through now with Uh, Super Smash Brothers Ultimate, uh, the original, or not original, sorry, but the the old GameCube game, Melee, uh, still has a really vibrant um, community built around it, and it's not that you can like create a lot of stuff in Super Smash Brothers, they're just like one-off sort of fighting matches, but the way that you can perform in the game, the way you can make your character move and pull off different things, Laid a groundwork for a very vibrant community to be built around uh, competitive play. Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes it's like unexpected things. Um, you know, you you don't always know what's going to stick or make something popular, and it might be you know something that gets a resurgence later on. Um, but I think having a way for players to express themselves, whether it's through the creation of content or just through like a particular way of performing in the game uh, in a very abstract way. Mm-hmm. Um, something along those lines, I think is like really key.
0: Mm. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't have made that connection to something like Super Smash Bros. that's very different from these like building worlds that you guys like explore in the series. But uh, yeah, I, th- I think there's definitely a connection there. Um, in your research, did you ever encounter any companies that uh, discovered user creations and sent cease and desist orders to try to shut them down
2: yeah the city of heroes one was the biggest yep. example um trying to think of any others mitchell you have anything i mean there's a million of this kind of thing i i guess i'm thinking of like also it's not really like an online games thing but like uh nintendo is famous for being yep. uh particularly uh harsh about that sort of thing like i remember hearing about a uh, fan remake of um I think it was Metroid 2 that uh, was coming to near completion when Nintendo just sent a huge cease and desist order, and they had to go underground. Uh, yeah, Nintendo is very harsh. <laughs> I,
1: I think the same thing happened to the Mother 3 English translation, but eventually Nintendo like relented on that.
2: Yeah, that was, yeah. That
1: was
3: on my mind. And also just thinking about Smash, there was a mod for Super Smash Bros. Brawl. Uh, the sort of Awkward middle child of the series uh, called Project M that was yes. trying to combine yeah the like the movement factors and uh, sort of gameplay speed of melee uh, with you know the additional functionality that you had in the Wii game uh, additional characters etc cetera, etc cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and that got shut down just like it was around for a very long time and then very suddenly Nintendo just like sent one letter and it was like. I'm sorry we cannot have Project M at this tournament anymore, you know. That, 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 that. And mm. it just like completely disappeared. It got wiped out.
2: It sucks. It's so counterproductive for those companies yeah. too. I mean, like you'd think you would want to like foster fan engagement in that way. Uh like it can only help you, but there's it's just short-sighted. It's like they're worried about their uh intellectual property getting uh taken away or whatever. <laughs>
1: People are willing to build you content for free. You don't have to pay them. It's because they love the thing you've built. No, here's a cease and desist.
2: Yeah. What? Yeah. It's crazy.
1: Yeah. Out of all the content worlds that you covered, which do you feel allows the user the biggest digital freedom to like explore and build inside of the world?
2: Hmm. It's hard to. Single out one. I mean, uh, we were very focused on games that that allow that sort of freedom. Yeah. And uh yeah, I guess like um yeah, ZZT is great because it was like set up from the jump to allow you to do that, you know. I mean, like I think like part of Tim Sweeney's goal with ZZT was to allow people to make games with it. So he set it up and uh, Allowed people to just share that stuff without any issue, and he made the game free too, for the most part. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was shareware, so you just download the game, and uh, you had to pay to get like the full set of like adventure campaigns that came with Czt. But the editor was totally available, yeah. so you could create and distribute stuff with Czt without paying anything, mm-hmm. no restrictions. Uh, pretty pretty solid stuff.
3: Mm-hmm. I I guess I have two different answers because on one hand. Second Life does yep. offer the most freedom, just as an engine, like mm-hmm. the different kinds of things that you can have, make your avatar do, make your avatar look like, and you know behave as. Uh, but it also has the least <laughs> in terms of uh, the financial restrictions, um, you know, imposed on it. Uh, but the other answer I was thinking of was uh, Doom, uh, especially mm-hmm. with like the newer tools that have been built. Uh, Doom Builder, etc. Um, you know that allow you to introduce custom scripting, uh, custom environment tools and, and sprites and, and graphics and things. Um, you can, and I've seen examples now of like people creating like entirely different games that are just like explicitly not Doom games uh, with the Doom engine, which is really cool. And, um, you know, we've also seen uh, so for the, uh, the series on Means TV, uh, the, the episodes themselves are free. But if you're a subscriber to Means TV, you also get access to bonus content uh, where essentially Derek and I uh, sort of revisited the games um, and just kind of like explored different things and tried to have a good time. Nice. And for the Doom one, we looked at the multiplayer side uh, and multiplayer sort of run games and We happened across the Doom Mega Man uh, sub community. uh, And there's a very vibrant community of people doing uh, not only like deathmatch style, like team sort of fights uh, with completely created like Mega Man graphics and like characters and stuff. Like you can be like Cut Man and and all that stuff. It's great. It's like the.
2: It's the 3D, like, you know, it's the Doom engine, everything's in that blocky kind of 3D, but they've skinned everything with like 8-bit style graphical skins, right? So it's like you're in a 3D Mega Man game. And uh, yeah, it's neat. It's called, uh, I think it's called Mega Man 8-bit Deathmatch. Um, But yeah, sorry, Mitchell, I'll let you continue because the thing we found was just nuts. (laughs) Sure,
3: sure. Um, Yeah, and they've like custom coded in like all of the different attacks and weapons and things. and not only were there, not only were there those deathmatch fights and things, uh, but there was a mod on top of that uh, that was like a community hotel space. Where, yeah, they called it
2: community hotel. Yeah. Yeah, Whoa, it was okay. just like
3: a social environment based on the Mega Man version of Doom. Uh, okay. So you could go in, you could socialize with people uh, as like Bubble Man and (laughs) that kind of thing. (laughs) And there was like a fishing mechanic. Like there was a lot of stuff like coded in, like on top of stuff on top of other stuff. Um,
2: Yeah, so so it was like this great, big, enormous hotel where there are rooms you can go in that have the avatar and name of like prominent community members. So like each community member has their own room in this hotel and each room looks different and has like very cool theming around it. So there's that, like, just a huge, gorgeous environment that's just there for you to go in and chill out and chat with people in between death matches, And it's, like, so different from the experience of playing Doom. It's mm-hmm. mind-blowing. Uh, yeah. There's a jukebox where you could play, like, uh, Plastic Love on it or various, <laughs> like, 8-bit, you know, like, chiptunes and stuff. Um, it was so cool to explore it. And I think, like, Doom is great because the Doom engine feels so good to play like you're just running around Mm -hmm. super fast in these very chunky like 3d environments that are like the way that doom's environments work is so uh engaging it's like simple understandable 3d spaces that yeah there's just something about the substrate of the doom engine that allows you to like architect, really engaging, compelling 3D spaces of any sort, and then run around like a maniac in them. <laughs>
3: it is funny because, like, as Liz was saying, like, especially if you're coming from outside the community, everyone, you know, thinks of Doom. And if you heard like custom Doom level, you would just think, oh, it's, you know, you're the Doom guy. You got a gun and you're shooting like the monsters. There's the Cocker demon and stuff. <laughs> like, you wouldn't expect at all like this. Uh, Mega Man skinned uh, like hotel hangout space. It's like so completely outside of it. And,
0: yeah. You know, it's interesting. yeah, That's amazing. Um, do either of you remember the first time you downloaded like a fan project for a game and can you talk about how that
2: changed the way you thought about
0: game creation tools?
2: I remember playing a uh, Sonic the Hedgehog fan game when I was probably in elementary school. <laughs> um (laughs) called sonic chaos i believe it was called and uh i think if i tried to go back and play that today it would not be uh (laughs) very good but uh i was a super nintendo kid and i always wanted a sega genesis because i wanted to play the sonic games but i never had one and uh eventually i managed to acquire the pc port of uh, sonic 3 and knuckles and had a great old time with that but um As a uh, Sonic the Hedgehog desperate uh, kid, I I did enjoy some of those fan games and uh, it was like pretty unique to like, you know, see like, wow, this is a full on Sonic game. I mean, maybe it's not full on, but it's a Sonic game made by just some some people like me, you know, some kid like me made this. Holy, holy shit. You know, so that was pretty mind blowing at the time.
3: I would say my answer is, it's kind of a stretch of what the question was, but my first experience with that kind of thing was actually downloading a toolkit for creating custom stuff. Uh, It was, I somehow found my way onto the Zoo Tycoon uh, community forums, and there was a toolkit that you could download uh, called Ape, like Animal Project Editor or something like that. And it allowed you to create custom animals inside of Zoo Tycoon uh, and I guess some other like custom stuff. But animals were obviously the most interesting thing. And uh, I tried out some of it a little bit. There were ways that you could like kind of palette swap things. You could have like blue tigers and like green antelopes and that kind of stuff. And then there are other people like creating like completely customly built animals with all like you know, custom like new animations and graphics and things, um, which was a really interesting experience for me. Like experiencing a like a custom asset inside of a, like a pre-manufactured game for the first time. Um, and one example that kind of sticks with me is uh, someone created this animal called the moonwalking giraffe, <laughs> and it was the it was the same giraffe from the original game. But all they did was they swapped like the north-facing animations with the south-facing animations and like all the directions so when it walked to the left it was playing the animation of walking to the right and it would walk
1: (laughs) incredible
0: that's so clever that's so funny
3: right yeah i I looked at it i was like son of a bitch (laughs) that's awesome
1: Uh, What do you think a long-term solution would entail for keeping many of these digital palaces not only maintained, but also continuously supported? And how can we invest in the hardware to maintain it?
2: Yeah, so, oh boy, it's a big question. Um, For one thing... there's not enough resources or money dedicated in our society's software preservation there's just not enough institutions that are able to do that because it is expensive uh, and it is time consuming takes a ton of expertise I mean Mm -hmm. it's software preservation is in some ways much more difficult than uh, traditional archival preservation of stuff like uh, papers or even something like a film print you know I mean. Software needs to be continuously maintained over the long term. Uh, you need to like always have an eye on it. Like you can't like put it in climate controlled storage and expect it to last. Like, yeah. you know, hard drives die. Even if you put it on tape, like it's expensive to put it on like LTO tape substrate. And then you have to like maintain those. Mm-hmm. Check for uh bit rot and all that type of stuff. And then make sure that it's still like, can be run on future devices. You know, you don't want it to end up obsolete where like you've got some file type that like, Can't run on a computer in 50 years, and you can't because it was proprietary, you can't hunt down the like specifications in order to figure out how to run it. So, yeah, stuff is in danger. Um, yeah, I guess just like you know, it's sad to say, but um, you know, under capitalism, archives uh don't get the resources they should because. Mm -hmm their archives don't really generate short-term profit for the most part. I mean, you know, like Nike has archives and they, their marketing department pulls like images of old shoes to, to help with, uh, you know, we're going to reissue a shoe from 30 years ago and get a big marketing push around that or whatever. But outside of that, like archives, don't really generate money. And so they don't really get taken care of, but, um, Yeah. And I guess the other thing is that like companies that own these games should uh, take some, I mean, it would be nice if we made them take good preservation action via legislation. If we were like, yeah, I mean, if we shortened like copyright terms, that would help a lot. And if we said like, copyright needs to expire after 30 years. And when it does, you need to release the source code for all of your software. And like, if you If you didn't hold on to the source code during all that time so that you can't release it now, then you get penalized in some way. Mm -hmm. That would sure go a long way. I mean, yeah, you could like blue skies all you want about this stuff. But um, ultimately, it does kind of feel like political solutions to this stuff are kind of out of our hands at this point.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. On that note, just as somebody who works in libraries in general, I'm sure that applies to a whole host of things beyond just being Yeah.
2: Don't even get me started.
0: Yeah.
3: I, I would say on that note, not that I'm the archivist <laughs> of, the, of the bunch, uh, but the thing that really compels me because of that, um, and just like understanding, uh, you know, the material conditions <laughs> that we're in, um, it feels like extra important to me that these worlds are preserved, not only within the software itself, but through these uh, sort of documentations, um, stuff that exists outside of the game, uh, so, the World's Chat community, for example, now has a pretty vibrant uh, wiki uh, community where they're documenting things. Um, you know, they have like some screen captures and some sort of logged entries for all the different spaces. Um, and work like that, and like what Dr. Doss is doing with the Museum of ZCT, um, all these sorts of amateur led uh, archivist projects uh, feel really important. To me, in maintaining this stuff, um, because like I, I would underst- I, I would say it's you know not too uh, crazy to say that there will be a day where uh, you know people might stop playing these games. Uh, it's definitely a possibility to consider at the very least. And for me, I would like there to be some sort of record that's left behind even after the game itself can't be played. Um, you know, so being able to look at, uh, you know, not diary entries, but like <laughs> people journaling their experiences in the game and uh, being able to look at old images and just to be able to at least secondhand understand what these people were doing in the games, what the games meant to them at that time. Uh, is i think a really important aspect of the historical uh, Mm -hmm. record
0: yeah i think a lot of time when we like think about history there's a lot of emphasis put on you know what leaders were doing in certain moments in history and all that stuff but i think the things that like your series show so well is just like how everyday people choose to spend their time and how everyday people live their lives i think is really important to document and to cherish because you know it's 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 such an important part of like understanding like why we play video games the way we play video games now has a lot to do with understanding how video games used to operate in the past why the internet works the way it does now has so much to do with how people use the internet in the past and so on and so forth and I think just for like understanding your own present material conditions you need to have a good record of the past and yeah your series just did this like beautiful job to me of like Showing people's natural creativity, how much people want to be creative and use their free time to make and share things with other people and be in community with other people, and yeah, it's it's just a really cool show, and I just wanted to gush about it a little bit.
2: Uh, Thank so you. Was, um, yeah. and I do want to piggyback off something Mitchell was just saying because I was really talking about like institutional archives and everything like that, but game preservation has always been um, a very active space. I mean, some of the most active people in that space have been like the hobbyists and the fans and everything. Like most of these big emulators that people use today were coded by like just people who wanted to play their old games. And uh, that is crucial preservation work that was done. I mean, yes, it was done because people wanted to like play a Super Nintendo game on their computer. But also like if every last cartridge of a random Super Nintendo game like ceases to work, then uh, we've got it in software form and like backed up in hundreds of thousands of computers just regular people holding on to like copies of the full corpus of Super Nintendo games that is good digital preservation practice and so um you know i hope people continue to do that kind of homebrew work that ends up having these uh larger uh beneficial like effects and um I also think that the stuff Mitchell was saying about like ethnographic work of like documenting what it's like to play these games is very uh, useful. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, recording videos of of gameplay or like writing like a description of, of it or uh, recording an oral history or whatever. All these things are worth doing. Um, you know, at the very least you can look at it as a form of like your own like uh diary writing or like keeping your own like scrapbook of records from your own time with these games. Oh. And maybe someday someone else will find them useful. Absolutely. Absolutely. To wrap things
0: up. Uh, do you guys have any plugs, anything besides preserving worlds you want people to check out uh,
2: where people can check out preserving worlds? Sure. Yeah. So means TV is uh, the place to go uh, means dot TV. I believe it's a, uh, worker-owned co-op streaming service, which has never happened before, so that's cool. Um, Preserving Worlds is on there, uh, freely available to watch. You do not need a subscription in order to watch that one. Um, But if you do subscribe, it's $10 a month. Uh, You'll be able to watch all the bonus episodes we did, which I think are fun. You'll be able to see that Mega Man Doom thing we talked about. so, yeah, it is $10 a month, but Means TV uh, is cool. And if you can't afford $10 a month, reach out to them. Like you can DM them on Twitter or send them an email or whatever, and they'll work with you. So, there's kind of like a sliding scale kind of thing, and they'll go as low as free if you need them to. So, they're cool in that way. Um, yeah, uh, Sarasota Half and Dream is our feature. That is also on Means TV. So, that one you do need to subscribe to watch, uh, but please do. <laughs> do you have anything to add, Mitchell?
3: Um, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Mitchell Zemmel. You, you covered the other stuff. Uh, so I'm just giving my personal plug. Um,
2: Totally. Yeah. Yeah, I'm Derek, uh, at Derek L. Murphy. Sorry, I cut you off, Mitchell. Go ahead.
3: It's just my first name, last name. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) You'll find him. Yeah.
0: Well, tight guys, this has been great. Thank you so much for your time.
3: Yeah. Thank you. I had a
2: great time. Yeah. Thanks for having us on. That was fun.
0: Thank you so much for listening, and thank you so much to Mitchell and Derek for their time. This was an awesome interview.
1: And you can find more about their project, Preserving Worlds, at preservingworlds.net, as well as their Mean TV series, Preserving Worlds, at Mean mm-hmm. TV, slash English program, English slash, slash Preserving Worlds. And you can check out Derek's site at derickal.com, and Mitchell's site at
2: mitchell.com, that email,
0: And as always, the links to the sources for this episode are in our episode description and on our website.